So what is a common misconception that you have, but you also have a hard time getting around? What's a hard, what's a common misconception that you have, but have a hard time getting around? For me, it's the concept of sunrises and sunsets. So when you say that the sun rises when the sun sets, you're basically saying that the sun moves. But if we really think about it, at the center of our galaxy sits the sun. And really, it's the Earth orbiting around the sun and the Earth rotating and orbiting around the sun that makes it feel, at least from our perspective, that the sun's moving, when indeed it's not moving. It's the Earth that's moving. And so as I thought about this, and as we wrap up our, simple, as our, as we wrap up our, our series, Simple Theology, today, we finish the series with a topic that I think often has a lot of misconceptions. And today that topic is the church. Now when we think of the church, I bet we all associate it with a building, like what we're in right now today. I bet we associate with an organization or maybe an event that happens on Sundays at 10 o'clock or a location that our church is off of 169 and 610 or that you're a member of church or you're visiting a church or that you go to church to sing songs and to hear the pastor preach. But there's so much more to the church than that. And I'm going to tell you why this morning. And so today... Again, we've been defining these big concepts with one word. And so today, we're going to define church as body. The church is body. Now, church as a body is one of the most common metaphors used in the New Testament to describe the church. And the word church itself comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which refers to an assembly or a gathering. And one of the best passages that talk about the church is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. And so I'm going to read it for us. It's a bit of a long passage compared to what we normally read, but feel free to follow along as I read this passage about how Paul explains what the church is. And so this is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the, bo- placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. 
But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So in this passage, we find three essential natures of what the body or what the church is, and they are this. The church, the body, is unity. The church or the body has a function. The church or the body is a love. And let me explain these three natures for us to understand the church as body. And so in verses 12 through 26, it describes the church's nature of being united. Paul describes the church as a body made up of many parts. They gather together because they are baptized by one spirit, and because they are, they are baptized by one spirit, they form one body. The church is first made up of individuals who are united to God through Jesus. And so in many aspects, all of us who are here today, we are at the church because we've been united with God through Jesus. And then that is also very unique because then that makes all of us united who are united to God because we share that unity with God. And so there's unity in that sense that we're united to God and we're united to each other because we share that unity with God. Often we will refer to the church as a building where people come on Sunday. But the building here, building here at 9,101st Avenue in Brooklyn Park is simply a location. It's not the church. It's simply a building. It's simply a location. The church is the body. It's specifically the gathering of the people, of the believers who are united to God and who are united to each other. And so the church is not a building, but the church is the gathering of the believers. Now, the church, when gathered, for, they are gathered for a purposeful reason, which leads us to the second nature of the church, and that's that the church has a function. And the primary functions of the church are these. There's three of them. The first is to worship God. The second is to encourage the other believers. And the third is to share the gospel. So let's break these three, 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 these three things down. Worshiping God simply means that we honor God because he is worth wor oh, honoring. He is worth worshiping. Because we have unity with God, because he saved us, it is worth worshiping God. It is worth giving honor to God. We worship him through singing, which Johann led us to in. We worship him through being thankful in prayers. We worship him with sharing with others what he's done in our lives. And so worshiping isn't limited to just singing, but again, it's whatever we do to give God honor, whatever we do to attribute God honor. So even if we simply think that, man, God has been so good in my life this week, that is worship. 
Now, the second function is to encourage others. There's a big church word for this. It's called edification. But I'm just going to use encourage. The second function is to encourage others. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 to 26, this is what it says. But that its parts, meaning the members of the church, its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That there is a sympathy for the other believers. That because we are united, we feel with one another. We feel what someone is feeling. We hurt when someone is hurting. We celebrate when someone is celebrating. I so love the response during, as much as I didn't like the pandemic, I love the response of a lot of, a lot of the folks, a lot of the church members that I was surrounded with. And so whenever someone got sick, it's like, hey, let's start a meal train. Hey, can we drop off something for you? Hey, can, you know, do you need anything that I can pick you up from? Pick, anything from the grocery store that I can pick up for you because you're quarantined. There was this sense of, man, you're hurting. How can I help you? Hey, you're celebrating. How can I come alongside you to celebrate with you? Hebrews chapter 10, I think, says it best in verses 24 to 25. This is what it says. And let us consider how we may spur one another on, how we can spur, how we can encourage, how can we, how can we, how can we push each other on. Consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, but not giving up, meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more you see the day approaching. And so Hebrews tells us, hey, how can you spur one another on? How can you not miss out on the gathering to encourage one another? Again, the members of the church, they celebrate, they suffer, they encourage, they instruct, they teach, they sympathize with each other. So much more than just the building and location, right? The third function of the church is to share the gospel so that others can be united to God. This was Jesus' last command to his disciples and to us. And we can share the gospel through evangelism. We can share the gospel through mission trips. We can share the gospel through serving our community in impactful ways that show them the love of Jesus. Through the purpose and the function of the church, though they are few, though there's not very many functions of the church, we're not limited about how we do these things. And so each member, each one of you, each one of us here, we each have a unique gifting. We all have a unique role. We have a unique responsibility to worship, to build each other up, to share the gospel. And so the way that you do these things doesn't have to look like how I do it. And the way that I do these things doesn't have to look like how you do it. We don't have to be in uniformity. We don't have to conform to looking like each other. We do have to conform to looking like Jesus, but God gives us the skills and the abilities and the roles and the responsibilities to do all these things in our unique ways. And so there's not a right way of doing it, but again, there are many ways of doing it that honors God. You see, in, 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 in the, the passage we read in verses 7 through 10, Paul says this, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. Everyone has a function. Everyone has a gifting. Everyone has skills and abilities that they contribute to the body in doing all of these things. 
We all have unique and diverse ways of carrying out the functions of our church. And it's our job, you and I, our job to find ways to encourage each other to do so. Which leads us to the last nature of the church, which is love. The church needs to be driven to do everything in love. The reason, the very reason why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, his letter to the church, is largely because the church did not operate out of love. The church was very skilled and talented. The church was gifted with lots of talents and, and different gifts and abilities, but the church did not operate out of love. They struggled with disunity. They were selfish. They were arrogant. They overlooked those that they should have cared for, that they should have loved. They argued with each, with each other who had the greater gifts or who followed the greater leader or who was the most impactful. They argued about these things. So in response, Paul responds to the issue that the Corinthians faced. And after asking them rhetorically, what is the greatest gift out there, he writes this in, in chapter 13, following the passage we read, verses 1 through 7. This is what it says. If I speak in tongues, and so the gift of tongues was a gift that they were arguing that was, was an important gift. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now this last part of the passage is often a passage that you might hear at weddings. But it's really about the church. It's really for the church. Love is the church's primary attitude. A love that is patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud. A love that doesn't dishonor, but honors. A love that isn't self-seeking, but selfless. A love that isn't easily angered, doesn't keep records of wrongs. A love that rejoices in truth, that protects, that trusts, that hopes, that perseveres. You see, love is the essential nature of the church next to unity and function. Now, earlier I talked about misconceptions about how I perceive the sun. And again, as we think about it, as, as, as I think about some more uh, in my studies this past week, I think, um, you know, I think about th that perspective, how the sun is in the center. I think how the sun rises and how it sets and how, how the sun revolves around us, but actually we revolve around the sun. That's kind of a selfish perspective way to look at things, that the world revolves around me. And I, as I think about that, that's a literal way of how I think about that happens. But as we examine the three essential natures of the church, I think there's a common misconception about the church that oftentimes I think we might have a very selfish view of the church. I think the greatest misconception about the church is that it's all about me. I go to church for my benefit. I go when I want to. I serve when it's convenient. I give when I can. I'll listen to the sermon if it sounds good. I'll sing the songs if I, if I know them or if, or, or if they're meaningful to me or if it's my favorite song. 
We live in a society that imparts, influences us this way because our society values individualism. And unfortunately, the church isn't about that at all. The church exists to honor God and then honor others. The church is about how the body honors each other. It isn't about me. It isn't about you. And it's about others. And to be a part of the church means that you are part of this. Now, it doesn't mean that we neglect you. Because like I said earlier, when you are a part of the church, as others are honoring you, you are honoring others. And so it's this reciprocal giving to others as other gives to you. We're all about experiencing this unity, this love of what the church is about. We're all about experiencing worshiping God and encouraging the believers and sharing the gospel. We're all about doing this with an attitude like Jesus did for the church. You see, church is about being a part of the body and helping the body benefit. It's not just going out to get what you need, but it's also going out to give to it. And so take a moment. Consider what you are doing to contribute to the church. And if it's your first time here at church, don't worry about this question. But if you've been to the church for a period of your life, if you've been a part of the church, consider how have you contributed to the church? How are you a part of the body? What are you doing to contribute to the church? And what is your attitude of being a part of the church? If this is your first time or if it's been just a few times that you've been to a church, again, don't worry about these things. But if you've been a part of the church, consider how you have been a part to the body. And so I'll pause for a couple seconds here and ask you to consider what that's like. By no means do I want to put any of us on a guilt trip or a shame trip. Guilt and shame are tools of the enemies that I don't mean to drive any of us at, but it's a reminder that the church is something that we are a part of, that we contribute to. And again, as we give, others are giving to us. And so this morning, I want us to end service by taking communion together. If you believe in Jesus, that he's your savior, that he saved you, and that you rely on him wholly, I want to invite you to take communion. But if you haven't accepted Jesus, if you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus, if you don't know that you believe in Jesus, it's okay, you don't have to take it. Again, this is a, something that we do for those who believe in Jesus. And so there's cups at your table. Um, feel free to grab one, and I'll instruct us when we take it. And if you need, um, if you need the elements for communion, um, please raise your hand. I have, I have someone pass them around um, when we take communion. And so um, let's see. Uh, I'm just going to pick somebody. Ben, do you mind helping me out? 
There's a box of communion stuff right below the uh, offering baskets. If you need the elements for communion, feel free to raise your hand nice and high, and Ben will walk around and pass those out. Um, and then for kids who want to participate in communion, but again, you know, they haven't believed in Jesus. I've got animal crackers for them that I'll pass out in a little bit here. But again, communion is one of the two unique things that a church celebrates. The other is baptism. Communion is a celebration that we participate in that's meant to reaffirm our identity as believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 29, Paul provides instructions about communion, but he also provides warning. This is what he says. Same book that he writes about this in Corinthians. This is what he says. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is, which is for you. Do this, excuse me, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. In the church's early days, communion was celebrated with feasts. Nowadays, we celebrate it with a little piece of cracker and some juice, but in the early days, they would have a potluck, and there was a feast. And communion was supposed to remind the believers about Jesus' sacrifice for all of us. But when the church took communion, when the church ate the feast, some of the members neglected the purpose of the meal, and they also stood divided from others. Sometimes the poor were neglected and they weren't invited to the table and so they were left hungry as the rich overindulged so much to the point that they got, they got drunk on the wine that was meant to remind them about Jesus' death on the cross. The central focus of communion, the central focus of this celebration was to, to remember Jesus' sacrifice. But instead, the church indulged and served only themselves in overeating, overdrinking. And so Paul writes instructions about communion, warning the believers to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the wine. They were to examine if they expressed the unity and the love for others or not. So as we prepare to take communion, I invite you to take a moment to examine your life. Have you done anything to cause this unity and hate within the church or within people in your life?
If you haven't, praise God and ask what you can do to continue to demonstrate love and unity just like Jesus within the body and the people in your community. If you have caused you disunity and hate, take it to God and ask for forgiveness and trust that you are forgiven knowing that you can still partake in communion this morning. And I'd encourage you to seek forgiveness from the people that you've hurt and also ask God what you can do to demonstrate unity and love like Jesus. And t- so take a moment, examine your life, examine the parts of your life, if there's ca- any cause of disunity or any, any cause of hate, and take it to God and ask him for forgiveness, know that you're forgiven. And if you can't think of anything, praise God and ask him how you can continue to live in love and unity. And so take a moment to examine your life, give it to God, and then we'll eat communion together. Now, I know growing up as a kid, whenever communion was taken in church, I always thought it was a snack and I want to eat communion. And again, we know it's a ritual. It's a celebration that we do um, to remember what Jesus did for us. And uh, again, we want to include the kids in this. And so if your kid, you know, hasn't believed, doesn't, you know, there's no clear signs that he's he or she believes in Jesus, but they want to partake in this. Kids, if you want to partake in us eating communion, I've got some animal crackers. And so kiddos, if you want to come up and grab an animal cracker, teens as well too, adults, if you want to come up and grab an animal cracker and partake in communion with us, feel free to come on up. I've got some animal crackers for you here. And so I'll stand right up front and feel free to come grab some. And again, we'd love to, for you to, to share with us in this moment of, um, of, of just eating um, communion together. For kids, they get a little snack. For us, we get, are reminded by what Jesus Christ did for us. Then I'll leave the animal crackers right here in case any kiddos still want to come up for a little snack. But church, for us, this communion is a reminder for us of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. That he sacrificed everything to demonstrate his love for us. And we do this in remembrance from him. And again, if you believe in Jesus to be your savior, I invite you to take communion. But if you're not sure that you believe in Jesus, again, you can observe all of us partake in it, but I ask you, you don't have to partake in it. And so the elements are your table. I invite you to grab one if you haven't yet, and let's take communion together. Let's start with the bread. The bread here represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. It reminds us that when Jesus was on the cross, his body was broken for us. And so let's all take the bread together.
Next, let us take the juice. This is the juice which represents Jesus' blood that was shed for our sins so that we could be in relationship with him. And so let's drink the juice, the, the blood of Jesus, reminding him that he shed his blood for us. <clears throat> Communion is a unique celebration in the church that happens nowhere else. And it's to remind us that as individuals, we are united to God and united to other believers to live out what God has called us to live out. And so may communion be a reminder for us this morning of the sacrifice that Jesus has, in our, the sacrifice of Jesus and the implications in our life to love others, to be united to others, and to show that love to others in our life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the reminder that the church isn't just a building. It isn't just a service. It isn't just a location. That the church is a gathering of believers who are united to you and united to each other because they share the same experience. And as a church, God, may we worship you, may we carry out the functions of building each other up, of sharing the gospel. And may we do it with an attitude of love. God, remind us that whenever we gather with other believers, Lord, that that is, in a sense, church. That church isn't limited to just Sundays. But church is the gathering of the believers where worship happens, where building each other up happens, where sharing the gospel happens. And so Holy Spirit, may you work in our lives, Lord, and remind us that that isn't isolated here in the church building, but that church can happen anywhere when believers gather and do these things. Allow us to be a church that doesn't just do these things on Sundays, but may we do them all weeks and all days of our lives, Lord. That we can worship you, that we can build each other up, that we can share the gospel with others, Lord. May you continue to transform our understanding of this concept of church that you so beautifully created, Lord. And may we trust in your word, knowing that nothing can stand against even the gates of hell. That we will be an impact in our community, in our homes, and in the world. So we thank you. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.